you would, take a copy of the scriptures and turn to the book of Ephesians, as we continue our sermon series in this wonderful little letter. And let's read together verses 17 through 24. This is the Word of God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you now to send a double portion of your Spirit to meet with us, to illuminate your Word before us, to send it forth in all the power that you have in it, and that you would transform our lives. And that you would do this for your glory and for the edification and building up of your church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we look around us in the world today, we see an ever-increasing mindset of immorality. Now, I would argue this is nothing new. It may be newer in our country because at a time the gospel did have an influence in our country. This is nothing new under the sun, though. Wicked men, wicked mankind has always been immoral. But we see it a, a, a trend growing in our society. You know, there was a time when law and order was the rule in this land. There were certain sins that were not tolerated. And over time, they slowly became to be tolerated, eventually legalized. And now, sadly, these sins that once were considered heinous are now celebrated. Society expects you not only to accept them in their sin, but to celebrate their sin with them. Look around you. We see this everywhere. There's there's no longer the move to just be recognized or, or just to be left alone to do what you want. But you will acknowledge me in my sin and you will celebrate it with me. That's the prevailing idea of our society today. And we see that in our passage. It's nothing new. It is nothing new. As Christians, we do not celebrate sin. We must not accept it. We must not tolerate it. Especially in our own lives. In our passage today, Paul will contrast the old man with the new. With who we once were to who we now are in Christ Jesus. It is my hope and prayer that God will speak to each one of us here today, individually and collectively, through His eternal Word. Paul picks back up his thoughts from verses 1 uh, uh, one through 6 of this chapter. In verses 17 and 24, Paul calls us to reality. 
And then he will flesh out the applications of this reality in verses 25 through the end of the book. I pray that each one of us will see ourselves in this passage. And I mean each one of us. I pray for those who are still lost that God would show you the reality that is your life. And that he would call you to saving faith in Christ. And I pray for those of you who know Jesus Christ, who are found in him, (coughs) that we would look and see what it means, what what we've been saved from, and where we're going. It is rightly said that, that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And so we will take a look at that reality and what that means in your life. Of course, we're not going to fully flesh out the application because that will be picked up next week when we start in verse 25 as Paul will apply this to all aspects of our life. And I pray that this will all be to glorify our triune God. So Paul picks this up in verse 17. And this goes back to the idea of what he was talking about in verses 1 through 6. The idea of walking worthy of the calling. Right? Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. First we notice Paul's once again reasserting his apostolic authority. I tell you this in the Lord. This is a testimony that I'm testifying that these are the words of Christ. He puts forth this authority to stress the importance of the command that is to follow. And then he's going to issue a command and then kind of a picture of the reality. And then in verse 25 he will start then issuing subsequent commands on how we are to live how we are to apply these truths to our lives. So what is the command? You must not, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And of course we know in Scripture that a lot of times this Hebrew word that's translated walk doesn't mean actual walking. Although, uh, it is certainly used that way in other scripture. But it predominantly, especially in the writings of Paul, and of John, and of Peter, <laughs> that kind of takes care of all the letters, doesn't it? <laughs> Almost. <laughs> and James, yes, and James. It's predominantly used to describe a way of life. Paul is saying here that the Ephesian Christians are not to live their lives the way the Gentiles do. He uses this word frequently, especially in the the book of Ephesians, in this letter. Chapter 2, verse 2. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Chapter 2, verse 10. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And of course, in our verse here today, and we skip forward to chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Chapter 5 verse 8. For at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And so on. So we get the use of this term now to walk. It means to live a certain style of life. 
He also uses this in a positive and negative way. I'll give you an example of a positive way in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. He writes, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Our, our, we live the life of faith, right? He uses it in a negative way in Philippians 3.18, in a heartbreakingly negative way. He said, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So we have these two lifestyles contrasted. The walk of the Gentiles and the walk of Christians. And here the word Gentile is used synonymously with the unregenerate. No longer is it a distinction between the ethnic Jews and everybody else. It's a distinction between the true Israel, the Christian, and everybody else. In other words, those who are found in Christ and the unregenerate who are not found in Christ. Paul says that the unregenerate, look, look at the language here, the unregenerate live futile lives. The futility of their minds can also be stated as empty-headed. Empty-headed. Now, we know lost people can be very smart. They can have possess a great intellect. They can be, be men and women of great learning, of great education. But the empty-headedness that Paul is talking about here, the, the futility of their minds that he, he is speaking of here, is having minds devoid of love for God. Having minds devoid of the knowledge of Christ Jesus that leads to salvation. Minds completely empty of anything and everything worthwhile. Living futile and hopeless lives. You can be the smartest person in the world. And if you don't have a mind for Christ, all your learning is futile. You are just plodding along in hopelessness. No matter how happy you think you are. No matter what goals you achieve, no matter for what status you have been elevated, you are hopeless. As Paul says here, you are plotting about in the futility of your mind. This is what Paul has in mind when he writes to the church at Rome. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. That's a serious indictment. Who did Paul preach to in Athens? A group of scholars, right? The people that love to learn new things. Tell us something new so we can learn, so we can know, so we have this knowledge. And yet they lack the only knowledge that's important for all life, and that's the knowledge of Christ Jesus. And so he preached Christ to them. Paul next explains how the lost, the unregenerate, get where they are. You're going to see a, a progression in this passage. It, first, it's the futility of their minds. Paul writes, They are darkened. In their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. People don't like to be called ignorant, do they? And I can see where this could be very offensive <laughs> to people who are not Christians. Because Paul's not, he's not sugarcoating them. He's calling them ignorant. He's calling them empty-headed. Dear ones, this is what total depravity looks like. This really is. Because the lost are spiritually dead, they harden their hearts against God. They reject natural revelation. They refuse to acknowledge God in their minds. The life of God is not in them. We're not talking physical life. We're talking spiritual life. The life of God is not in them. <clears throat> they are spiritually blind, deaf, mute, 
lame. In a word, they're dead. If we truly, and I want you to hear this, if we truly see and understand this doctrine of total depravity. Now let me, let me explain what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that everybody is wicked as they can ever be. But I'm saying every part, their mind, their will, their heart, everything is depraved. It, it, it's stained with sin. And this is what total depravity looks like. If we truly see and understand this doctrine, it should first break our hearts for the lost as we see the utter hopelessness of their condition. We should see them as utterly hopeless because that's what they are. And that should break our hearts. Second, even more importantly, it should cause us to be patient and persevering in sharing the gospel with them. Knowing that they're depraved. Knowing that they're empty-headed. Knowing that they do not possess the knowledge of God or the knowledge of Christ that brings them to salvation. And so we ought to be patient with them. And loving. And persevere in sharing the gospel. Because that is their only hope. Outside of Christ, there's no hope. And three, and I think most importantly, this doctrine, if we see and understand it correctly, it should cause us to fall on our faces before the triune God and praise Him for His wonderful grace poured out on us through Christ Jesus. Because guess what, dear one? You were there. You were there. But by the grace of God, you are no longer there. You have been enlightened. Your mind has been opened. Your heart has been changed. And now, rather than walking about empty-headed, you're walking about with the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in your life, and you're growing in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, and you're becoming more and more like Him, I hope. The sad reality of total depravity is also a cause of praise for the believer because we know what we've been saved from. Because of their futile mindedness and their darkened hard hearts. Let's speak of the hard heart for a second. You know, a lot of people like to place blame on God and say, well, the Bible says God hardens their hearts. No. It, it does say that, but what it's not saying is God made them sin. It's saying that they hardened their hearts against God, and so God left them in their hard-heartedness. When it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. In other words, Pharaoh, you want to continue to harden your heart against me? Go for it. That's right where you're going to stay. And I'm not going to bring you out of it. That's God hardening. In other words, cementing in that self-willed hardness. And God says, so be it. That's where you stay. That's a dangerous place. That's a dangerous place to be. That's a horrible place to be. Paul says, they have become callous. And have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Do you see, see how that progressed? Started out as just futility in their minds, and now it's progressed all the way to callousness. Callous here means one who has completely seared his or her conscience. The Zondervan Greek and English interlinary New Testament translates it as having lost all feeling of shame. Can you imagine that? Mm -hmm. Yet we see it in our society. Mm -hmm. People seemingly have no conscience whatsoever. They do whatever they want and are not ashamed. 
As a matter of fact, shame on you if you don't celebrate it. <laughs> You're the one that's shamed, right? What a picture. Not only do they live in constant immorality, but they can't seem to get enough of it. These individuals have no moral boundaries. They not only openly revel in their lusts, but invent new ways of satiating them, of gratifying them. And I will say, this is as morally low as it gets. That's as morally low as it gets. Some commentators refer to them as just brute beasts. And I, and I believe that's a scriptural definition as well. Brute beasts. Now, I'm going to argue that Paul is not saying here that every lost individual is like this. Okay, that's, that's simply not the case. These are the people that have progressed to the lowest morality that they can attain. There are many decent people who, restrained by the common grace of God, have lines they are unwilling to cross. And they're not believers in Christ. But they have lines that they're unwilling to cross. There are unbelievers that say homosexuality is wrong. It's against nature. They have lines they're not willing to cross. That doesn't make them Christian. You know, there's a, a, a myth in this, in this country, especially today, that if you claim to be conservative, you're a Christian. That, that's, that's simply not the case. There are many people who are conservative that are not Christian. There are many people who say homosexuality is okay, but abortion is wrong. So they're conservative on issues, but not as a whole worldview. That doesn't make them Christian just to be conservative, even if they're conservative in every issue. What Paul is saying is that this is the destination of everyone who by natural progression have gone beyond just tolerating sin in their lives, but openly celebrating it, openly reveling in it. This callousness that he's speaking of. The more one sins, the more one wants to sin. Listen, listen. Living an unrepentant life of sin causes one's conscience to be gradually deadened. Take warning. It doesn't have to be a complete lifestyle of sin. It can be one pet sin. That you can come to the point where it no longer is a sin to you in your mind. Because your conscience has been deadened to that. Now, now look at that and say, what happens if that's your whole life? Everything you do. If you continue to live in unrepentant sin, your conscience will gradually be deadened more and more until finally it is completely silenced. That's what Paul's showing us here. This complete callousness against the things of God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but let's read just another picture of what Paul is saying here. We'll start in verse 28 of chapter 1. We could start in verse 18, but for time's sake, we'll, we'll just start in 28. Paul writes, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Well, he just continued this, this description. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
They can't get enough. And they invent new ways to sin. Well, there's really no new ways, but people try to come up with every different possible way that they can sin. This is not a good place to be. And, and, and all of that is what? Paul pointing out to the church in Ephesus, don't walk like that. Because as we see back in chapter 2, he says that's who you were. That's who you once were. But God saved you from that because of his wonderful, rich mercy. Brought you out of darkness into light. And so Paul is pointing that. He's, he's bringing back a reminder. Because remember the theme is to walk worldly of your calling. And, and that's not walking as the Gentiles do. That's the complete opposite. There's a contrast. We see both in Ephesians here in chapter 4 and in, in Romans chapter 1. We see punishment being meted out. God's not forcing these people to sin. But what does it say? He's giving them over to it. He's giving them over to it. They're hardened their hearts. They're hardened their hearts. They're callousing their consciences. And God says, keep going. Keep going. That's, that's, that's what you want to do. Keep going. In other words, he's not intervening on their behalf. Does that mean he never will? Not necessarily. I think as long as a person is still alive, still drawing breath, there is hope. There is hope. At least that's what I'd like to think, and I think the Bible teaches that. But once you die in your sin... You've lost all hope for all eternity. And so Paul's going to make a contrast now. He's going to say, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Notice this. He, he didn't say that's not the way you learned about Christ. <laughs> he said that's not the way you learned Christ. There's a big difference there. What does it mean to learn someone? It's talking about an experiential knowledge. It's talking about really knowing them. Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To learn Christ is not just to learn about Him, although that is necessary. Okay? That is necessary. There's not this easy inclusivism or whatever it's called that, that, you know, you don't actually have to hear about Christ. You know, you just have to do the best you can and, and God will take that and, you know, you're good. No, you have to hear about Christ. You need to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Through the preaching of the gospel, we learn about Christ. And through the effectual calling and illumination of the Holy Spirit, we come to experientially know Christ. That's what Paul is speaking of here. A saving knowledge of Christ. Not just a knowledge about Him. Charles Hodge explains, quote, So to learn Christ does not just mean learning His doctrines, but attaining the knowledge of Christ as the Son of God, God in our nature, the Holy One of God, the Savior from sin, whom to know is holiness in life. End quote. That's learning Christ. As a matter of fact, we're going to learn Christ for all eternity. We will never achieve full knowledge of Christ, but we will Know Him more and more throughout all eternity. How could we know an infinite God fully? We can never know fully an infinite God. We can have enough knowledge of Him to bring us to salvation in Christ. But if we ever fully comprehend God, we would be God. And we're creatures. That will never happen. 
And I frankly, I don't want a God that I can comprehend totally and fully. Because then he would be small and weak like me. He would not be the eternal, everlasting God. Remember the words of Jesus. He says, and this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John chapter 17, verse 3. That's knowing Christ. If you have truly come to savingly know Christ, you cannot live a life like the unregenerate. Having been brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light, you can no longer live in darkness. Have you ever walked out of a really bright room into a totally dark room or, or just even a dim room? What's the contrast there? You can't see it? Well, I don't know about you. I can't see it in the dark. But going from bright into darkness, it's like, oh, wow. There's nothing here. We... That's not our nature anymore. We can't thrive in that environment. And I would argue we can't even survive in it. Because it's goes against who we are. It's not where we were called to live. You are no longer empty-headed, living a futile existence. Your mind and heart have been filled with the knowledge of Christ Jesus. So that you now have a purpose for living. You have a reason for life because you have been given life. So what is it that Paul says you have learned if you have learned Christ? The first one, put off the old self. You have learned in Christ to put off the old self. Now if you truly learn Christ, you have learned that you are to put off the old and put on the new. Now, what does that look like? Well, first of all, in regeneration, that's a work of God. That's not your work. In regeneration, that's the work of God, making you a new creature, making you a new man. But in the work of sanctification, you're in cooperation now with the Holy Spirit working in you, called the sanctifying Spirit of Christ. You are responsible and capable God has made you capable of cooperating with him in this process of progressive sanctification put off the old self what does that mean what does that look like well we know that we have sin that clings to us right remaining sin what does the Bible say that takes place? We're not to be conformed, but we're to be, what, transformed, right? Metamorphosis. Get this picture in your head. You have this ugly caterpillar. And it makes a cocoon. And that cocoon completely seals it in. And something happens. The seal breaks, and out comes a better caterpillar. No. 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 The seal breaks, and something different comes out. Something different. But if you've ever watched, what happens? That, that cocoon just pops off, and there goes the butterfly. No. It's struggling to get out of that cocoon. That cocoon is clinging to it. And it's struggling. To, that's what it means to put off the old. That, that's been done away with. You've been made a new creature, but that sin is clinging to you, and you're struggling to get away from it. That's what it means to put off the old and put on the new. Yes, it's going to be a struggle. And it will be a struggle for the rest of your life until you reach glory. Albeit maybe the victories will get closer and closer together. And more powerful in your life. And the defeats will be less and less. Hopefully, if that's the progression of your sanctification. But you will have that sin clinging to you. You must ignore it. You must put it off. You must crucify it. Put it to death. 
The spiritual reality, dear one, is therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are not waiting for the new to come. It has come. You have been transformed in Christ Jesus. And so now, we continue to put off the old. That, that, that old self in its remaining sin. And we continue putting on the new. That is, putting on Christ Jesus. But don't ever get lulled into the, the deceitful thoughts that you have somehow managed to put off all your sin. There's still some there. It's still clinging. You know, like you walk through the field and you come back and got those little clingy briars on your, on your socks and your shoes and your pant legs. Got to continue to pick them off. Get them off. That's clinging sin. Paul writes of this ongoing battle. He was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet he himself had this battle. So don't think that you're in a spot all your own. He writes, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And then he continues later, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And this is in Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul was never foolish enough to think that Christian life is all peaches and cream. And that's why he also wrote, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. That's in this letter, in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. Our remaining sin is the, the tools that the evil one uses to trip us up and to cause us to stumble. Oh, look at me. You remember me. You loved me. And you should look at that and say, Oh, you vile creature. Get off me. How many people sit there and find a tick crawling on you and just sit there and watch it and say, Go ahead. Take your fill. No. You're like, Get off me, you vile thing. Most of us even try to kill them, right? So they don't bug anybody else. That's a picture of what we ought to do to remain in sin, right? A little tick disgusts us. <laughs> How much more should our sin disgust us and cause us to revile it? And so it is with extreme prejudice. Extreme prejudice. And yes, I said prejudice. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Romans 13, 12. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Colossians 3, 5. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. James 1, 21. That's what it looks like to put off the old and put on the new. But that's not just what Paul is saying. He also speaks of, of a renewal process that's taking place. And he says, being renewed in the spirit of your minds. This is in clear contrast to what Paul said about the futile, darkened, empty-headedness of the unregenerate. They, they're mindless. And you're being renewed in the spirit of your mind. As a new creation in Christ Jesus, your mind is being renewed in the Word of God, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by the means of grace that God has given to His church, if you so avail yourself of them. The means of grace that God has given do you absolutely no good if you don't take advantage of them. If you don't uh, 
unite to a, a local body of church, a, a local church, and, and thereby receive the means of grace that God has given to His church. Yes, there are private means, but those private means only lead you to the corporate means. You cannot have a right relationship with Christ if you don't have a right relationship with His church. And God has given us those means of grace. Why? To renew our minds. To help us put off the old. To help us put on the new. To help us be that Christian that He's called us to be. Right? That's what He's given to us for. They're not just a set of things that He expects us to do just for His good pleasure. Although they are for His good pleasure. <laughs> but he, he puts them there for our benefit. For our betterment. And we'll see that, I think, at the end of this passage. You must utilize the means of grace so that you can be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Paul writes elsewhere, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Later on in, in this very chapter, Paul will speak of, in, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, he'll speak of things that we ought not let in our minds, <clears throat> things we ought not say with our mouths, and, and, and how we ought not act. We'll see what that fleshes out, how this fleshes out later in the book of Ephesians. He writes to the Philippians, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worth of praise, think about these things. That's where our minds ought to be. That's how our minds are renewed. And I, I just picked it off the shelf yesterday, and I can't remember the author of the book, but the title was Loving Your God with All Your Mind. Think about that. You know, we are to love God with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our strength, and with all of our minds. And that's how we are renewed. Our mind, the the the... the basic center of who we are. It's just not just talking about our brains. It's talking about our hearts, our lives. We're not to walk as the Gentiles. We're to walk differently. How do we do that? By being renewed constantly. By putting off the old, putting on the new. You are a new creation at the moment you are united, united to Christ by faith. But as Sinclair Ferguson explains, quote, it takes a lifetime to work out into our thinking and living all the implications of this truth. End quote. You're not just saved one day and you got it all. It's, it's work. It's a process. R.C. Sproul once said he never knew how good he had it until he was saved, right? <laughs> he didn't struggle before that. But then he realized he was in a battle. Of course, that dear brother is no longer with the church militant. He's with the church victorious. Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what it looks like to put on the, on the new. Take up your cross daily. The cross is, is not some cute little piece of jewelry. It's an implement of death. It was an execution implement. You never see people walking around with gas chambers and electric chairs, do you? Or hangman's noose or something. We, and I understand we, we like to have the cross because it symbolizes the Christian faith, but I think far too often we take it too lightly. The cross was an implement of death, and specifically Christ's cross was an implement of salvation. What took place on that cross. So, quickly, what does it look like to put on the new? Just, just, a few, just a few scriptures. God's Word says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. What does it mean to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? It means to follow after him, walk in his footsteps, learn from his life, follow his example. And as Paul would write elsewhere, if you find somebody in your life that lives a godly life, follow their example as they follow Christ. Let them lead you to Christ in their example. Again, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's putting off the old, putting on the new. It sounds so much easier than it is. We can spout scripture all day long, but we know that if God doesn't give us the grace to do these things, we can't do them. We need the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. And I can't emphasize it enough. What does the Holy Spirit use? The means of grace. The means of grace. You don't have some special market corner where the Holy Spirit does something special for you that He doesn't do for other Christians. Okay, The means of grace. That's the rule. Not the exception. And we call them the ordinary means of grace. Why? Because we always, we learned that in Bible study this morning. We always have them as God's people. Okay, I'll... I'll stop on that. The means of grace. (laughs) I can't stress enough how important they are. We, We can't have any victories in our lives, in our Christian lives, without God's grace given to us through the means of grace. We put off the old and we put on the new. Why? Because, Paul says, we are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We're going to take a quick trip in history now here. Speaking of the image of God, when Adam and Eve were created, they were created in the image and likeness of God. And the human race, still to this day, are created in the image and likeness of God. However, the image was tarnished. That's a kind of a, a really tame word. I, I was trying to think of a, a stronger word. It wasn't destroyed. We can't say that. It was mutilated. How about that? Is that a better word? The, the image of God in, in, in humanity was mutilated at the fall when Adam and Eve sinned. But praise God, in Christ's humanity, that image was perfectly restored. Christ Jesus, perfectly in His humanity, perfectly restored the image of God for humanity. And as a Christian, albeit imperfectly, You bear the true image of God. It's not perfect because of that remaining sin. But it will be when we are glorified in body and soul for eternity. What is this image? True righteousness and holiness. You are in the eyes of God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that perfect righteousness, if you are in fact found in Christ Jesus. If you are not, I don't care how good you think you look, you're clothed in filthy rags. In our passage today, we have seen that we are not to live like the lost around us, but rather... As new creations, we are to continually put off the old and continually put on the new and continually being renewed in our minds in the Word of God. But pastor, you say, you have not explained how we are to do this. Don't worry. Be here next week. Same time. Same channel. We'll pick up, Lord willing, if we're still here, if I'm still here, if you're still here, we'll pick up in verse 25 and following, and progressively finish going through this book, and see how that flushes out in in the life of the individuals, in family life, in, in, in business entrepreneur's life, and in the church, most importantly. We'll see that, Lord willing. Dear one, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, 
I don't have an anxious bench up here. I don't have an altar up here. We have one altar, and it's empty. And that altar is a Roman cross. And that sacrifice is made, no longer to be made. But I'm not urging you to repeat a prayer after me. I urge you to run to Christ. I urge you to take a look at Jesus of Nazareth. His perfect life. His sacrificial death. His burial. His resurrection. His ascension. His exaltation. I want you to look at the whole biblical Christ Jesus. And flee to Him. He's your only hope. The Bible says that if you repent of your sins. And put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You will be saved. Jesus Himself issues the call, Come unto Me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest from your self-righteousness. Rest from your own works. Rest from your own trying to save yourself. I will give you rest. I will do the work for you. I have done it. If you come to Me, you will be a benefit of My work. You will be a trophy of My grace. Come to Christ today without delay. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. Dear saints of the Lord Jesus Christ, I leave you with a few words of encouragement from God's Word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And finally, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Father, it is my prayer And I hope all of our prayer here today that you would make these great and glorious truths a reality in our lives and in our hearts. Would you continue to control and to shape the way we think, the way we talk, the way we interact with others. In other words, the way we walk, the way we live our lives for Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, would you do this for your glory? Would you do this for the building up and the betterment of your church? And most of all, would you do this to magnify your only begotten Son in this world as you advance his kingdom through the gospel. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. If you'd stand and sing with me number 78, Grace Greater Than Our Sin.